What does courage look like to you? Hey, this is Heike Yates, and this is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Jet fighter pilot Sharon Pressler needed a lot of courage for her job and was one of the first women to fly the F-16. She had to overcome self-doubt, and being first comes with a lot of responsibility and pressure during training. She finally stopped worrying about what others were thinking or saying about her and focused on the things that she could control. That led her to her final assignment before retiring from the Air Force. She worked in the North American Aerospace Defense Command, writing Homeland Defense and Response Plans after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And these plans are still in use today. Sharon is talking to us about today how not to let other people define you, action steps to overcome obstacles, and embrace your accomplishment and not downplay them. If you love our episodes and the Pursue Your Spark podcast, please share them with your friends so the show will grow. And with that, let's dive into today's interview. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower women over 50 to take back their health and strength to lead a vibrant life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of women over 50 around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies, and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and sustainable, so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring women who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best life, so that you know You're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Today's guest is Sharon Betty Pressler. She was handpicked as one member of the initial cadre of women fighter pilots in the U.S. Air Force to fly the F-16. 16, and she is currently a captain for the Southwest Airlines. She has over 1,300 hours in the F-16 and 9,000 hours in the Boeing 737. Sharon is the first woman to fly the F-16 in the U.S. Air Force, and she was instrumental in transforming the fighter pilot culture to accept women. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. My pleasure. I was like, I'm looking at, at all these fighter hours and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is a lot of hours. And the only time I've been in a Boeing is in the passenger, not in the passenger, but in the behind where all the, all the other people sit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah. I just gotta say that in the F-16 community, the getting over a thousand hours is kind of a, a milestone. So I was glad to be able to get that done since I got to the F-16 a little late in my career. Well, we'll talk about all of this in a minute, but first I want to know, 
I know that you have two dogs and you're volunteering in a local animal shelter. Tell us more about it. Yeah, it's a little place called Home for Good, and it's a, it's a no-kill shelter. And we started volunteering there with an organization that my son was a part of when he was 15 or 14. And it's just a nice place to, to be able to help the animals, you know, and get animals bring such joy to your life. It's nice to go to a shelter where you can help out and you know that every one of those animals is eventually going to find a home. Yeah. Because yeah, I know that, that some of the shelters are really full and people are getting them as Christmas presents, the animals, and then like, oh, we don't want them. Right. Yeah. Right. And both of our dogs that we have at home, they're both mutts and shelter dogs. And, and one of them is actually one that we got from the shelter we volunteered at, even though I said we wouldn't. We eventually did. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to have the side effect of it. It's like every, all of my friends are like, I was just going to volunteer and suddenly I have a cat or a dog or whatever. <laughs> yeah. He makes me smile a lot, though, that little puppy. He was a puppy when we got him, and he's two now. And every day he makes me smile or laugh, so it's worth the effort. That's awesome. I love it. Now, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Where do you grow up and uh, what was your life like? Or give us a little bit of a background story and we share. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, mostly in a place called San Bernardino, California. Uh, my mom was from England and she met my dad who was in the Air Force when he was over there. And they were married and came back to the States. And then when he went to serve in the Vietnam War, he was in Thailand during the Vietnam War. We went and lived in England with my grandparents for a year. And then we all came back to uh, San Bernardino. And probably a couple years after that, two to three years, my mom and dad got divorced and he kept moving around and we stayed in San Bernardino. And so we got to go visit him in all the different places he lived over the summers, which was, which is fun. You got to see different parts of the country and that. And then uh, I went to college up Northern, up in Northern California, at UC Davis. And then I was in the Air Force and moving around myself all over the place. Now, when did you join the Air Force? Um, right out of college, I was in the reserves op reserve officer training program, so I actually got a college scholarship from them to help pay for my college costs because we didn't have really any money for that growing up. So, um, and then I was commissioned right after graduation. Interesting. Now, what interested you on in becoming a pilot? Uh, yeah, so uh, I told you we went to live with my uh, grandparents in England, right? Yeah. So that was the very first flight of my life was crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And I was four years old. And uh, it was just my mom traveling with two little girls. My sister was six and I was four. So the stewardesses were really nice to us. And then they once we got out over the ocean, they took us up front to the cockpit. And it was the most amazing sight I'd ever seen. There was just a billion stars in the sky. It was so beautiful. And I, uh, I went back to my mom and I told her that I wanted to be a stewardess. And she asked me why. And I said, well, I just, you know, I think flying is just the funnest job. And it was so beautiful up front, mommy. And I started telling her about it. And she looked at me and you have to remember, this is 1969. So I'm lucky my mom is forward thinking probably because she looked at me and said, oh, that's nice, honey. Do you think you might want to be a pilot? Oh. And I said, well, yeah, I didn't think about that. What's the, you know, the people up front, I could do that. And she's like, yeah, sure you could. Cause you know, back then the women were stewardesses and the men were pilots and that's all you saw. So there wasn't an example for me to envision that, but she did envision it for me and it was great. Cause from then on, that's what I wanted to do. 
And then what did you have to do to become a pilot? Well, there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, you can go civilian route. It just costs uh, a lot of money and you pay for all your own lessons and you, you learn to fly that way. Or you uh, go in the military and see if you can get them to teach you how to fly, which is what I did. Initially, I was, uh, it was still very hard. This was 1980, I think 86 when I graduated college. And there were still um, very few airplanes that women were allowed to fly. So all the women candidates had to meet a central selection board. Mm. And out of like 350 women, there were um, 10 pilot slots and 16 navigator slots. And I got to be a navigator at the time. I wasn't super excited about it because it, a navigator is back in the days before GPS, you know, you kind of sit sideways in the airplane and you plot on the map and you give directions essentially. Oh, really? Yeah. We used to use like celestial navigation and, you know, before we had all the satellites telling us exactly where we are. Holy cow. I would have never thought of that to me. Like, <laughs> oh, you're just going, you know, you have navigation and then you have a tower and you do your thing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, especially if you're crossing the ocean, right? Because there's no navigation aids. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's what I did at first, and I really, I did enjoy that, but I, while I was a navigator, I knew I still wanted to be a pilot, so I got my private pilot's license um, while I was in uh, Nebraska as a navigator and kept it. Basically, they had a selection process every year, six months, to transition navigators to pilot training, and I kept applying, and eventually, I think my second or third board, I got selected. And I got to go to pilot training in the Air Force. Uh, I spent a year learning how to fly in, in Lubbock, Texas. Now, this, this hand-picked uh, strategy, what was that based on? What did you have to be good at or qualify for that they actually said, oh, we want Sharon? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, when I was getting ready to graduate pilot training, there was some rumors going around that they might let women um, fly fighters. And I had been in the Air Force I don't know, six years by then. And I didn't really see that as a possibility in my lifetime. I thought it was just rumors, you know, well, it turns out the criteria were when, when I graduated pilot training, you got to pick your assignment from what was available, right? The Air Force puts out a list of what's available and they go through in, in merit order and say, what would you like to go fly? And of course I'm a little bit of a smart aleck. So when I sat next to my wing commander and told him what I wanted to fly, I said, I wanted to fly that F-16 to be determined, which meant you weren't going to go right away, but you'd go sometime in the future. Oh. And he just looked at me and said, that's nice, Sharon. What would you really like to fly? Because <laughs> it wasn't allowed. So I took my uh, C-21, um, which is a little Learjet that's a medevac airplane, and I went and flew that. And it's interesting because the advice I was given was go fly what's called a major weapon system, something that you can start your career in because I was already starting kind of late as a pilot based on my time as a navigator. And I decided that I was going to not follow that advice and I was going to go fly something that I wanted to fly instead. Um, so I picked the C-21. And then when they changed the law to allow women to be fighter pilots, the criteria were um, you had to have a fighter available to you when you picked your assignment, which I did. And the second criteria was you had to not be in a major weapon system. Because the, the little Learjet that I picked, you only flew it for three years, and then you went and flew something else for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. So the Air Force's thinking was we would have to retrain you anyway, so we're not really wasting money. But mm -hmm. if I would have followed the advice I was given and gone to a major weapon system, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to fly F-16s. 
So those were the criteria. And then they called your current squadron commander to see how you were doing and if they thought, if your squadron commander thought you would be up for this. And that was it. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was totally unexpected call out of the blue for me. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I was so excited to think that I could, you know, fly an F-16. It was just amazing. So, and you were actually the first woman out of any to fly the F-16 for the U.S. Air Force. Yes. Yeah. When um, they picked us, there was uh, three of us at the big press conference at the Pentagon with General McPeak, and it was uh, Jeannie Flynn, and she went to fly the F-15E, and Martha McSally, and she went to fly the A-10, and, and me, and I went to the F-16. Yeah, so I was the, the first woman to do it, which is, um, you know, being first is is really a matter of kind of luck and timing, right? I mean, you have to be qualified, but then you have to be given the opportunity. But it's it's a lot of extra work being first, I learned as a, as time went on and I went through the process. And talk about pressure, Sharon. Um, yeah, that was... Woman, like all the eyeballs, all the male eyeballs are on you and the female eyeballs are going, okay, I hope she does a really good job because we want that too. Exactly. So um, there was definitely... Uh, a group of people who didn't want me to succeed. I mean, who would have just been just as happy if I would have totally messed it up and they could go, see, we don't need to have women fighter pilots. This whole thing is silly to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so there was the pressure on myself to prove them wrong. And then there was uh, the pressure of all the eyeballs watching because there really was, I mean, they were passing performance reports all the way up the chain to general officers on how I was doing on a regular basis, which is, a little unnerving <laughs> mm -hmm. and and then the the most important to me was I really felt like the future of women fighter pilots was on my shoulders that I didn't I couldn't mess it up I needed to do well for all the the people that would the women that would come after me you know I needed to set a good example and show that this was the right thing to do mm -hmm. so that was um, too much pressure for me truly and it got to me after a while, and I eventually had to just put it all aside. Now, it's, the people that hoped you would fail, how did you combat them? How did you, you know, brush them off or, or dismiss or whatever you want to call it, deal with them? Yeah, yeah. So um, I learned there's some people, so I kind of, there was, to me, there was three groups of people. There were the people who said, oh, who cares? Let's give her a chance, right? Mm -hmm. There were the people, and this was probably the majority, that said, I'm not really excited about this, but let's, you know, let's see how it works out. So they, they, those were the people that you could actually convince differently. And then there was the people that were, there is no way this is ever going to happen. I cannot support this, no matter how well she flies an airplane. And those are the people that you really just have to ignore. Because mm -hmm. um, you'll never change their minds, no matter what you do. Yeah. What I, what I ended up coming to eventually after uh, after some struggles, because um, I did have some problems in my training in the F-16, and, and when I did something that wasn't up to standard, I would just put more pressure on myself, right? And at some point, you put too much pressure on yourself, you're just going to do worse. Yeah. So I finally figured out that I should just um, focus on what I could control. It was a big lesson for me. Um, and I couldn't control what people thought about me or what they said about me. Uh, I just couldn't. All I could control was how I flew the airplane every single day. Yeah. Because I mean, 
this criticism is as women, we take this, I think, more personal, personally than men in general. And we identify with that criticism so much that we let this criticism define us instead of looking past it. Because the criticism oftentimes may come from just being jealous. Yes. Or it just come, not it can, you because for no apparent reason. Well, I was bringing change, and a lot of people don't ever like change, right? Yeah. Change can be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in addition to just trying to focus on what I could control, I also focused on the people who supported and believed in me. Yeah. And I think that we often don't do that enough. I mean, why should I have my husband and I have been married since I was 19 years old? Is right? he so, in the military too? No, he just uh, found new jobs everywhere he went around the country. <laughs> oh, he's the, he's the, usually what the wife is like going with. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But so why, why would, why would I listen to strangers' opinions of me more than my husband's opinion of me or my parents or my friends who supported me and thought I could do this and had confidence in me? So you get to, it's hard to do, but you can actually choose whose opinions you value. Right. And you can choose whose words you identify with and internalize. And if when you get to the point where you can do that, it took me a while to do it. Don't I'm not saying it's easy to do, but at some point you just have to go, you know what? I don't care what those people think. They don't even know me. They're not giving me a chance. They don't care what I do. They're just going to say no, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to instead listen to the people who say you can do this. You've got this. You know, you're able to do this. And and one of the people I talked to before I went off to training was uh, my instructor pilot um, from pilot training. He flew S-16s. So I, I checked in with him and I'm like, and I was really curious to see if he was going to be excited for me or if he was going to be, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Oh. And he was excited for me and he was confident that I could do it. And that really helped because there's somebody who knows what I'm getting myself into who yeah. still thinks I can do it. Yeah. Now, when you think about the situation, and you had you were talking about courage today, what does courage mean to you, Sharon? Uh, yeah, so uh, courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid of something. That's the first thing. Courage is the opposite of that. Courage to me means being concerned or worried or afraid of a possible outcome and then going and doing what you want to do or need to do anyway. And, and focusing instead on, instead of the, the bad that could come if it doesn't work, focus on the good that can come if it does. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, people look at what I did sometimes and, and they say, oh, I could never do that. And I'm like, well, okay, but that's not your dream. That's not your passion. So it's going to be hard for you to be courageous enough to do that if it's not something you truly want to do because you're going to face adversity. But people people can find their own courage to do the things they want to do. You know, whatever that is, stepping out of your comfort zone, starting a new business, um, mentoring somebody. There's a million different things, right? Learning how to cook a new kind of food, whatever it is. Courage is different to everybody. And you don't, I want to encourage people to be courageous, not to do the things I did, but to do the things that they want to do. That's well said, yeah. Yeah, because when I think, you know, we had several other uh, lady fighters on the show so far, and some of them, my listeners have met already, 
And it's, I was like, you know, I never thought of becoming a pilot. And they all were like, oh my God, that's the best thing ever. And I was like, great. <laughs> So, yeah, I agree with that. It's like you, you got overcome the fear that holds you back to, to, like you said, cook a new recipe. What's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, it doesn't taste good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to make that again or measure the ingredients better. Right. <laughs> well, and I like to, so I, one thing, things I talk about when I talk to people about this is uh, developing your courage and, and I try to do it. I'm a, I'm a logical person. So the way that I develop my courage is um, by a logical assessment of the good and the bad that will happen from whatever I'm trying to get up the nerve to do. Mm -hmm. um, and if in this particular instance, that was a, was a big piece for me, not so much the deciding to go fly F-16s because I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself into. So that wasn't courageous at all. It was, um, and I'm too stubborn to quit once I get in the middle of something. So it, th there was no, there was no question I was going to see it through one way or the other. Um, but after I'd been an instructor pilot back at Luke for a few years, I had a, uh, engine or electrical malfunction, sorry, that forced me to end up ejecting at the end of the runway out of my airplane. And that was scary. <laughs> and it was, um, I, act, I didn't get hurt too badly, cracked my tailbone uh, when I landed on the dirt next to the runway. Um, but the whole process, you know, it was just, uh, wow, I could have really died right then. It was, Things at, it was at the end of the runway. Yeah, so I had an electrical problem that had never happened before. And essentially what it made happen was my brakes didn't work, my mm -hmm. radios didn't work, and my hook didn't work. So I couldn't talk to anybody. And I didn't know that those things weren't going to work until I landed and stepped on the brakes and it's like absolutely nothing happened. The pedals just go straight to the floor. Mm. So then you put your hook down and hope that you get the cable at the end of the runway. And of course my hook didn't work either, but I didn't know that. Um, so I ended up going about, we're only going about 70 miles an hour or so at the end of the runway, but you can't, the F-16 doesn't do well in dirt. It's going to flip over and you're going to be trapped most likely. So I ejected, which is, a very violent thing, you know, it's throwing your, it's got a rocket motor under your seat that lights and pushes you up the rails and then your parachute opens and then it takes, the whole process probably took five seconds and you still uh, before. Seat, and you still have your seat on you, right? Uh, it separates when the parachute opens. So you start off with your seat and then when you get away from the airplane, there's a parachute that comes out and then you separate from your seat and you land hanging from the parachute on your feet. Okay. And do what's, well, you're supposed to do what's called a parachute landing fall, which they had taught me, you know, 15 years earlier, but I didn't do the best one. And uh, I didn't get, because I was on the ground, I didn't get um, very much time in the parachute to slow me down. Okay. So I hit pretty good, and I ended up cracking my tailbone. And um, But it was just the, the idea that things went so wrong so quickly. Right? I mean, I was it was a perfectly normal flight, and then all of a sudden I'm sitting in the dirt. You know, so I was uh, actually very concerned about going back to fly. I had to, I had to think about it and it was only 11 days. So less than two weeks later and they're like, okay, you're clear. I'm like, okay, great. I don't know. That. And inside I'm going, I don't know if I want to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
so this to me was a was a moment where I had to develop my courage. I sat and thought about it. I'm like, okay, so logically, what are the chances of this happening again? They're probably pretty slim. You know, it's very rare to have to eject once. It's almost, you know, never happens that somebody has to eject from the airplane twice. So, and logically I knew that, but in my heart, I still couldn't get past it. So I, I sat and thought about it for a while. And I just thought about, you know, how hard I'd worked to get where I was. And did I, did I really want to give that up? Or did I want to push through this, you know, overcome my fear and go do what I needed to do? And, and that's what I ended up doing, but it took a little bit of soul searching and it took a little bit of, of internal discussion and wrestling about, um, you know, what would I gain? What would I lose? You know, what do I gain if I could do this? Will I get continue my career as an instructor in the F-16 that I love? You know, what do I lose if I don't do this? Well, I'm not flying anymore, you know, and I love that. But what's the risk? You know, well, realistically, the, the physical risk wasn't that. It wasn't any more than it had been before. I was just more aware of it. Mm-hmm. so I decided to go back and fly and for the first probably six months or so I thought about it every time I landed that airplane I'd go to step on the brakes and I'm like I wonder if these are going to work today <laughs> and, and yeah because it's just you know the whole rest of the flight I was fine and then you come back and you land and just that action of going to step on the brakes and I'm like okay here we go let's see yep they worked and eventually you know you get that positive reinforcement enough and and it kind of pushes the the concern farther and farther back in your mind, and and I don't I don't think about it anymore after a while. Okay, good. So it didn't continue to define who you were or how you behaved. No, no, it it did take a while, probably longer than I expected. I mean, realistically, but it was a <laughs> it was a very defining moment for me in my flying career. So I guess it's allowed to to take a while to get past it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah i was like i'm glad you shared that story because it was on my list of questions because i was like i want to know a lot more about what i read about this here <laughs> that's yeah. definitely a defining moment it was it was and it was the other thing was you know i um so luke air force base has nine fighter squadrons when i was there and each squadron has say 20 to 25 instructors in it and I was the only woman. So even though I was respected with what I did, it was also that I was still the case that everybody knew what I was doing. You know, you're never going to blend in when you pick a, when you pick a career like I did, you just don't ever blend in. So you just have to accept the fact that people are going to know, you know, what you're doing. And I, I had gotten to the point where I felt like I was blending in. And then, you know, this put me right back in the spotlight because if you've ever seen what happens with airplane crashes, you know, everybody's got to second guess you and try to figure out what you could have done differently or what you did wrong or right. And so I was just right back in that, in that spotlight feeling like everybody was looking at me going, Hmm. Did she PMS while she was flying? I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, I didn't have a lot of mood swings with it, but I had physical, I had a lot of uh, cramps and some other issues, but, it wasn't going to stop me from flying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No. I mean, yep. I agree with you. No, just like a, a normal comeback is when we women screw up is like, Oh, she's probably PMSing or yeah. uh, she's in menopause or one of those. We, we always have to have a, a, a physical issue while, when something happens, it seems. But yeah. So, 
I would just look at the guys if if you ever heard somebody saying like that and like, well, what's your what's your physical reason for being so irrational right now? Oh, great comeback! <laughs> <laughs> you wow. know what? What's what's your excuse? <laughs> great comeback! But that brings me to you changed the pilot culture to accept women. How? What happened? What did you do? Tell us more about it. Um. Well, I would say that the, the fighter pilot culture in the Air Force is more accepting, but there's still people who don't think women should be there. I think those people are always going to exist, unfortunately. But just like, you know, it's some people, it's easy to judge people on what they see from the outside. And there's always going to be people that do that, whether it's color or race or height or weight or who knows. Those people will always exist. So you just got to throw those guys out. You don't, you don't pay any attention to them. And you focus on the rest of them. And what I found in, in fighters in particular, in a lot of places, you know, it's really your performance that counts. Mm -hmm. As long as, as long as you, like any group or team, as long as you attempt to fit in and you do a good job, um, people are going to, some begrudgingly, but they will eventually accept you because you're good at what you do. And you're you know, you're a good part of the team as well. You support the other parts of the team. You make an effort to to build some camaraderie and those kind of things. Yeah, that's important. I mean, I, I learned from the other girls, the other fighter girls, that there's very few of us, and oftentimes we're really far apart as well, and there's less support from the female side. Um, but everybody that I've interviewed so far has said, uh, you guys blended in really well and were so well accepted by the men uh, with, of course, with exceptions, which is everywhere. I mean, some men just want us in the kitchen and bear children. <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> but yeah, because I think uh, one of the stories that I heard is about uh, getting together with some of the, the fighter girls. Oh, yeah. And networking and, and all that. But as an instructor and in, in, in a teacher, you had to be a, a certain role as a leader. What was your role or how did you have to carry yourself in that role, Sharon? Well, um, especially in the fighter pilot community, I mean, if you don't have confidence in yourself, then people are not going to respect you. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I, I was a, as an instructor, I was a flight commander, which meant I had like five students who were my direct responsibility to make sure their training was going well and, and taken care of. And, um, I loved that role. I truly did. Um, it was fun. I enjoyed working with the, you know, the, they're mostly all younger than me. They're young lieutenants and captains and they're all excited about getting started in their F-16 career and they're motivated. And, and it was fun. It was hard though, when guys weren't doing well, right? Cause I don't want to see anybody fail, but we, you know, it does happen occasionally. But overall, I think that the best one of the best things that came from my time at Luke is even though I only affected the directly affected the students in my squadron, right? I would be at the officers club on a Friday night or whatever. And every student at Luke knew there was a woman instructor there and that it wasn't a big deal. So in their initial introduction into the F-16 community, they see me and they know that their instructors respect me. So hopefully we're sending them out the door to F-16 squadrons with at least the, the inkling that, yeah, it's okay for women to do this. And it doesn't, you know, detract from the fact that they do it, that we can do it as well. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a competition. It's it's just if you want to do this job, do this job. If you're good at it, you're good at it. If you suck at it, well, there's other jobs to be had, and it has nothing to do with the sex. Exactly, and that's you know, and that's what it comes down to. Really, we want the best people on our team, yeah. right? I want my wingman or my flight lead, I want to be able to count on them that they're going to do their job, that they're going to defend me, that they're going to attack when they should, that they're going to put their bombs on target. All those things are the critical elements. And if you can do that, I mean, by the time you put your helmet on and all your gear, you can't tell if I'm a man or a woman. The airplane doesn't know the difference. You just go fly. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Now, when and why did you leave the Air Force, Sharon? Yeah, so, um, you know, the earliest you can retire from the Air Force is 20 years. I was a little bit over that. But uh, so I told you, I also have a son. He's 18 now and just finished his freshman year at the University of Arizona. But in my last assignment at Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina, we had been there about three months, maybe at the most, um, and he got diagnosed with leukemia. So um, that was obviously the next earth shattering moment of my life, but he's perfectly healthy now, but it's a three year treatment process. And, and I didn't want to be halfway across the world in Korea or Afghanistan or Iraq or all the places that F-16 pilots deploy um, while my son was still getting chemotherapy mm -hmm. and having spinal taps. And, you know, it just wasn't as a mom, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. So it was, if I'm not willing to do that, to be deployable and to be, you know, that part of the team when they need me there, then it's time for me to leave. So it was a tough decision, um, but it was the right decision. And uh, I'm really glad I made it. And that's when I just sat, decided to transition to the airlines where I'm gone, you know, two, two nights a week and I can call in sick if I really need to. So. Oh, it's not seven days a week flying or I'm, cause I don't know how that no. works. Yeah. It's Southwest anyway. Our trips are at the, are on average three days long and every once in a while four days long. So like I would go to initially, I would go to work on a Friday morning and I would be home Sunday afternoon. Mm -hmm. That's not so bad. no. And especially in the summers when he wasn't in school, cause he was just turned five when I uh, started at Southwest. Um, it was awesome. We had all sorts of time that I wouldn't have had with a more traditional job. So yeah, his, his getting sick, Colin getting sick really refocused me on what was important and as much as I loved the F-16 and I thought serving my country was important I felt it was time for me to step away from that and focus on being a mom a little more yeah does it feel tough to stay in the same place um it's funny because we moved to to where we are now in Peoria Arizona and we lived in the first house we bought here about three years and then we moved again and we laughed about it because that's pretty much an Air Force standard three years and move but um, we only moved, we only moved a mile away to just a lot nicer house. It was, you know, it was in the recession in 09 and we just found a really good deal. So. <laughs> Cause I was like, after being used to being transferred so many times and, and I know I have friends who are in the service and they're like, Oh, we're in Italy now for two years. Oh, yeah. Germany now or wherever they are. And I was like, you know how to pack up your stuff and your little bag and off you go to the next assignment. I can imagine yeah. to like sit in the same spot. Yeah, well, and we've been in the house we're in now for 10 years. It's kind of crazy. Whoa, that is crazy. <laughs> I've never lived in one place for 10 years before. 
That is crazy. But I want to, before I close with my final questions, I want to say something that I found about you. You haven't talked about it, but I want to bring this up because uh, on your last assignment was the North American Aerospace Defense Command. Uh, you wrote their Homeland Defense and Response Plan uh, that are still in, after the terrorist attacks in 9-11, and these plans are still in use today. How do you um, do that? Yeah, I, I feel good about that. I mean, I, it was funny because um, I was pregnant with Colin when I showed up to that assignment and it was a non-flying job to just give me time to, you know, have my son and, and maybe not work quite so hard. And um, I got there in June of 2001 and then September 11th happened and it was crazy, you know, and Colin was born in December of 2001. So um, it was it was more work than I anticipated, but obviously that wasn't the important part. It was, how are we going to make sure this never happens again? Mm -hmm. um, how are we going to, and, and really the biggest part that I had a plant part in, I think was called the rules of engagement, which is, you know, how do you decide if you're going to shoot down an airliner or not, because you think it's going to go purposely kill a bunch of other Americans. Um, it's kind of a scary thing and it's you know we for a little while we had air defense systems outside of Washington National Airport I mean there's there was a lot going on then to try and to open aviation back up and to make it safe for everyone not just the passengers and the pilots and the flight attendants but for the people on the ground mm -hmm. so yeah I felt like that was actually a worthwhile um, non-flying assignment I I met a lot of great people we did some good work I learned a lot yeah, when I saw that, I was like, I am so honored to have you as my guest. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely turned out to be a different job than I expected when I got there. But um, it was a great opportunity to, to try to help get things back to what we consider normal. Yeah. So what do you hope to achieve by sharing your story, sharing? Well, I really hope to encourage uh, people and and women in, in particular to be brave to do what they want to do to have confidence in themselves um i think that i think that women in particular more so than men we're braver than we give ourselves credit for and that if we would just give ourselves credit for the things we've already accomplished the obstacles we've already overcome if we would uh, just really embrace our accomplishments and not downplay them, which, which I even see myself doing sometimes, mm -hmm. um, you'll realize how brave you really are. And you can use that. You can use what you've accomplished in the past and the things you've done to develop your courage to do more and to do what you want to do and, and not let fear hold you back. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people reach you and find more out more about you, Sharon? Yeah, the best place, uh, I mean, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, but there's also a Athena's voice USA.com. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, it's called the wisdom of women warriors. It's a speakers bureau, but they also have a, a YouTube channel. You know, once a uh, COVID-19 started, we all tried putting together some videos of, of things that we learned being fighter pilots that could actually help deal with pandemics 
which sounds silly, but it works pretty well. You know, focusing on things you can control, prioritizing your efforts, um, all sorts of good lessons that apply to being a fighter pilot that you can use in everyday life. So uh, that's a good place to see some more stories about me and also some other amazing women. Yep. And on this website also, guys, you can hire Sharon to be a speaker at one of your events. And she has several topics that she's offering to talk about, uh, even aside from the corona. So you can find all the information about Sharon on Athena's website. And with that, Sharon, thank you so much. And again, I'm so honored that you came on the show with us. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's always a joy. Thank you. And for anybody listening, please reach out to us either over the Athena's website or to me at Heike Yates or Heike Yates Pursue Your Spark on Instagram and Facebook and let us know how Sharon sparked your ideas, helped you with the stories she told, or how awesome you think she is. We hope to hear from you and I'll see you in the next episode.